After a year of running experiments, we realized that successful sellers and marketers didn't have the next greatest playbook. They actually had frameworks, insights, and tests that they ran and refined. Welcome to the B2B Power Hour, where we align go-to-market teams together to win the right business with better experiments. I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett, and I'm a seller. And I'm your other host, Morgan Smith, and I'm a marketer. Join us for live shows and interviews that will help you learn what to test so you can sell and market better to your customers and prospects. Now, on to today's episode. Laura, how are you today? I feel like we haven't done an enterprise of social in so long. And that's absolutely correct. I think it has gone a couple of months since Christmas and nobody even feels that Christmas have just at all been here. (laughs) Yeah, so nice to see you again, Nick, live with everybody. Yeah, it was a kind of a weird year, wasn't it? It was. That's okay. But now it's another weird year. (laughs) Well, I was kind of thinking as we we were talking about the show host, like the kind of the tail end of last year and the start of this year has been rather overwhelming in tech. And it's been really interesting because the one question that has come out of this is, is community going to kill outbound? Is it going to be the end of it? Uh-huh. Is evangelism the new outbound? Uh-huh. And I'm curious, maybe that'll get answered today. I really hope so. Or at least in a different light than we are used to see it, for sure. And so question back to you, Nick. How <laughs> many communities are you a part of? Or at least you feel that you're a part of? Oh, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. I find that realistically, you can only really participate in maybe two to three very well. But there's a couple other fun ones that I join in because I realized that joining in communities that were about my common interests and not just work. The one thing that's been blowing my mind is when I always thought communities, we had bonded over like Pavilion and uh, like Thursday night sales and all these ones that normally pop up. But one of the things that's been really interesting as we started doing the show together is people started telling me about WhatsApp groups and Mm -hmm. the different Slack channels. And it made me realize that my view of community was very small. And it makes it really interesting to see, like even our guests today, and how there's just so many different versions of community that are working and we just don't talk about. Exactly. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to digging into the open source communities and how those are different to what we actually are used to see. So back in the days when I was working at Red Hat, I was not too much aware about the communities that we're talking about right now, like pavilions where people come in to learn and to ask, well, what kind of B2B software should I buy for callouts or something like that? I was not aware of this, but the only way I knew communities was through open source. Red Hat is an open source company and well, communities for them is people doing better code together. Imagine you're writing code. The only thing, the only reason you're able to pick up code from anybody else is because you're going to give it back. As soon as you enhance it, you give it back to the community. And that feels like free work. Imagine if you come to a pavilion community, you create a new sequence or something like that in sales, and now you just have to give it back. Or you pick one from Nicholas Ticket and say, okay, Nick, I just made it a little better, better response rates, go run with that one. It's like, because anybody can actually use it. 
And I think this is the beauty of communities where it could go, but we are so closed in a way that feeling that we're so special in doing everything by ourselves. So today we're going to talk about open source communities and how people are actually doing that free work for everybody else to use. And there are companies that are actually monetizing this for the positive of even better codes. I'm so excited. The thing that I found really fun, really fun about this guest, I'm not saying this is the first guest you've been jealous of, <laughs> but it was one of the more fun intros that I've ever had to a guest. And the one thing that caught my eye is like, you've done delivered quite a few keynotes now. And you were saying, yeah, this person always had people lined up, lined up for every time they went anywhere, lined up to go get signatures, to go and talk to them. So Laura, who is this person? Who is this person that we just have to meet? Definitely. So Klaus Ibsen, he is senior principal software engineer at Red Hat. That's where he's hired. But what he's known for is he's leading the Apache Camel community. And whenever he used to be at events, he wrote many books. He, he has one in his hand. He'll show you like how big the brain <laughs> and the book <laughs> is and stuff. So I remember the cues of people waiting to get signatures with Klaus. And I really want to hear his story about it because I think it's so fascinating. People are queuing up to actually have a chat, have your signature, have your book, and actually wait for the next one. I think this is so exciting. Let's bring Klaus on. Hey, Klaus. Hey, everyone. Hello. I'm here. Thank you very much for the um, awesome intro. It's fascinating that you lead with the queue and people actually want to meet me. It feels like a um, past life a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I hope you are getting into more events than, than that. Yes, <laughs> so you know, certainly now the world is opening up again. So yes, yeah. Oh yeah, the book. Uh, just this is the, you know, this is what we call in the Apache Camel community. This is the what we call the quick start for the project. Quick start. The quick start. The light read. So, uh, yes, you know, the casual <laughs> one. You know? Well, that's that's a, of course a joke internally, or a joke, but it's nine hundred pages. It wasn't supposed to be uh, that so long but you know we wanted to give the, as many details as we could to the audience uh, to the readers yes it's a long process a lot to write and yes it's actually harder to take out than to take in uh, so that's why um, um, you know it's really you know, we want this instead of that no no we need both of them so uh, it's really is a was a fascinating journey to write books wrote two books on that that subject on camel and oh, yes there are the publisher has you know they keep uh, always picking uh, me for when can we start a the third edition <laughs> and actually so there are some new ideas burn spinning in my head about what should that be and so on so you know there is maybe light at the end of the tunnel but it's definitely a hard work to do it because also when i start a journey like that i don't want to do it halfway, you know, so I give my best. Uh, together with my co-author, Jonathan, um, I put in maybe a, more than a thousand hours just for that single book. So, you know, you have to find that time and with family and everything and also getting older, right? So not so fast anymore. So 
but the content of the book is is five years old now, so a lot is happening in IT. So you know, it's maybe a time for a refresh. Right, Klaus. Let's bring it to the start mm. about talking about open source communities. Can you give us your view on what an open source community is and how does it function? Whoa, that's a broad question. Well, so let me give my my intro to the open source community because that's part of like my baseline. I started getting really engaged with open source communities uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago in a professional way. Been working professional on camera for 15 years, getting paid for working upstream. And, you know, 15 years ago is a lot different than today. You know, when you see, talk about open source communities, there's a lot more foundations and communities and people are more familiar with actually being tried to engage and work in a community, whether you're just, you know, contributor or just a casual user, etc. You know, 15 years ago, when I when we started on this, open source was not sort of like a pervasive and uh, sort of like a first choice as it is today. So it felt more like a startup. That term wasn't really the term back then or grassroots, you know, so we are sort of like a rebel, you know, these kind mm. of, you know, semi-nerds, you know, even though, yes, I have uh, classes and no hairs, but I don't, you know, drink a lot of coke or eat pizzas. But, you know, we were sort of in that spirit and we were a small team that could actually take on, let's say, the bigger vendors with their proprietary software. And we can go out there in the open source community to try to build solution for what our clients or what we felt we needed and we can do it really more an agile way but coming back to the open source communities what my sort of like aha or oh moment with that was when i came you know my background uh, before getting engaged was that i was a full-time consultant with a client in denmark actually in copenhagen and we the client had you know to software from a very large uh, American company that had purchased another company, you know, so acquired one. And they're sort of like when that happens, sometimes you feel that acquired company and their software gets sort of like uh, deprioritized and that was happened. So this software was really complicated to use. And in America, you know, they have, you know, expert that knew about that software, but in Europe, it was really one guy that flew around in, you know, France, Germany, England, and whatnot. So it's hard to get hold on. So it's actually hard to start using it, but it was, it was sold, right? The client had it already for many years. So we were this small team at the client in Copenhagen. And hey, we thought the client wants to operate and run this software for the healthcare. And they have a team that operates and know that they have standard software for that. And then there has this strange entity, this enormous monster that purchased somehow in America that has special things of everything and nobody really likes it. So we started to find ways around it. Mm -hmm. People, ah, that's also what happens today. And we ended up, you know, using as little of the monster we could. And then, you know, just you go plain standard Java based uh, development. And for that, then we discovered, okay, we sometimes need to do a certain feature and maybe there are, how do you do that? Or maybe there are better ways of doing that. And then we researched on the internet. I started researching on the internet and then, you know, I discovered a number of open source integration libraries. And one of them is, uh, as you could probably guess, was Apache Camel. So that's where, you know, the 
whoa moment kicked in for me. You know, back then there was no Slack and all these Twitter. You don't, you know, there was no sort of way to learn or know about this. You basically just had, you know, Google and uh-huh. go there and try to search and find. And the only way to get in tax with these was plain website and mailing list and IRC channels, which is sort of like a nerd thing to get start to use. Okay. But the flip side was that with this proprietary window, when we had an issue, you know, we could open a ticket in a ticket system, you know, wait for multiple days, weeks to get an answer. And then the answer was, you know, plain, and then we couldn't really get there. And that expert that was flying around, you you could never get this guy right. So we had workarounds and things like that. But it was such a contrast to the open source world, because when I installed the IRC client, you know, Freenode, and I went in there, there was engagement. People were chatting and yada, yada, yada. And it wasn't like a, a third-line support engineer, not uh-huh. to diminish their work. It was the founders of the product. It's the key contributors. It was community users. They were just nice. chatting about everything. It's like, whoa, I'm in the room with the same people, right? <laughs> it was like fantastic. And I could, you know, immediately get engaged and say, okay, we are trying this and this and this, and they could back and forth. And so that was really fantastic. That's something you could not get with uh, that commercial vendor, right? That's really tough. And even today for any kind of vendor like that. And that was felt so you know, inclusive, you know, to use the right one, and warm and welcoming. Right. And and that sort of kicked sort of like a light in my heart, you know, if you want to say that, wow, it's not only me that has these problems. Others are also starting to this. But this is 15 years ago, and it's not like today people just say, okay, go out, and how do we learn this and that? There's a community around it. There's books around it. There's YouTube videos. There is LinkedIn and many other things. Back then, there was like, yada, nothing, right? And you have to be a little more, let's say, nerdy to look into these things. And so then I started to pick up interest in this project and you know, pay attention what it do, what it did, and look at the source code to learn. And so at a certain time, my client then said, "Okay, is this something we could potentially use in the future, and that matches the standard we have about for the ops team, so it can run on on in a standard way, so we don't have to pay." special people, special to be on standby and so on. And surely it could because this was just standard Java. You can run it on the app service of the time, like IBM WebSphere and whatnot. But it was open source, but it was, you pay zero for it. So the client was starting to become happy for that because, you know, they paid all the other money for that uh, commercial software. So, but we know we still have many years to go before the support contract terminates and, you know, let's see what is going. So what we then decided was to do, spent an afternoon, a Friday, or maybe even a full Friday, and they said, okay, Klaus, you can try to research a bit more, but we need also to engage uh, the entire team. And when I say the entire team, is we were like four or five people, not too mm-hmm. many, right? But still, that's a great group to share experience with. So what I did was to take one use case the client had running in production with a proprietary system and try to replicate that with the camel thing. You know, standard thing, okay, I take the patient data from this, I do a little if this, else, then that, and then see if how camel can do that. And then I discovered, okay, there are some out-of-the-box software you could do for that, the components, but one of them, there was some failure in it. But I had the source code, I, I, I'm an engineer, I, I go in and try to look at the standard Java, I start to learn, okay, the thought is, okay, hey, here it is. I can do 
debugging and all that kind of thing. I could see that was a bug in the software. Nice. I then, you know, fix the bug, add a unit test or something like that, and then I contribute it back to the community, as you oh, said. Now, right? yeah. I work for free, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but with an end goal, right? They, they sparked my interest because, you know, this was really a fantastic community. I couldn't get engaged with these guys and I couldn't experiment, my, experiment myself, right? And then, then, you know, do that. And doing that, that's uh, really fantastic. And then I started to write tutorials and examples and so on to get a, like, see what is, does it feel to use this software as an end user? And write some examples. First, you do this and do that. Today, there was no books then. There was not this quick start guy. Well, to spread the knowledge to my own team, but also to the community. So it became an example as a healthcare example in some of the first installations in Camel. And because of that, then I got more and more engaged also in my spare time. Uh-huh. Because again, working for free, but it was also highly motivated factor because you had some sort of like-minded people in that group. Nice. And also had an end goal of pursuing this. You know, this is, has a real meaning for the client. If we could get to a point where it actually could become useful, it could just be for a single integration. It doesn't have to be the enterprise level, right? You have to start somewhere. Uh-huh. But prove yourself from the going and then move on. Fantastic. So that could potentially never happen with a commercial vendor back then with the proprietary software. And if you just fast forward to today, it's commonplace for yeah. enterprises that if they are using open source software that they can also contribute back. And some are doing that, but there's also an uh, obstacle, or if you will, sometimes there is legal sometimes getting involved because then you essentially, let's say, have an employee of X that then give away some work to an open source community or an open source community foundation like the Apache Software Foundation. And then, you know, do you, there are legal affairs you need to be aware of and when people are contributing they said they have to sort of like giving acceptance to contributing this to the foundation or the community Mm -hmm. so the community then can take it in so there is no let's say legal action later on right but no some um during that 15 years you know enterprise organization had to learn this right and then they have right so today is commonplace and some uh, enterprises are, let's say, allowing in their employees to get participants in open source communities that are, you know, of a certain license or if they're hosted on GitHub or other places. So yeah. it's much more commonplace today. Yeah, it was a big change. Yeah. Quick question, Klaus, in terms of, well, you were working for an employer and you were making better code because you wanted to help them and at the same time had interest in that community. But how did you transition to a full-time work in a community paid by another enterprise? Like that's I think that was probably a bit rare. But so back then there was the founders of Apache Camel was a small group of people that were building these uh, open source software. That was the tactic they had. Uh, they were going against uh, big uh, big vendors in the Java space around Java Enterprise. They were implementing a message broker system. They were using integration library like Camel. And the only way they could go against these vendors were, you know, the open source were approach and also being, you know, much cheaper in the sense. 
but they mm. have an open community. And they also did this in a foundation that has trust. And I actually today, I think this is maybe one of the most important factor you should consider when you are contributing to an open source project or using one is maybe a entity behind that that is uh, trusted, is neutral. It doesn't, you know, become a single window that can certainly change all the rules and or shut people off, terminate people. You're not allowed to contribute to this one and change licensing and whatnot, especially in these cloud things where, you know, you can suddenly people can take that code and fork it and do something else with it. So the Apache Software Foundation was a trusted entity back then, uh, maybe the, one of the leading open source communities in Java space, at least. It was before GitHub and many other communities and Cloud Native Computing Foundation, et cetera. So they were well, a small team. They implemented these uh, specifications for Java Enterprise, certain around messaging and integration and so on. And then they were able to, you know, go against the big proprietary vendors. And they had the community aspect or that like-minded people like me were able to actually participate and get in there and maybe speak on their behalf. Okay, this is fantastic. We can try with this. We can pay millions and millions of dollars for this, but we can at least try this, give it us some time. And there are like organizations that was you know, doing this as well. So we saw the community grow and grow and a lot more people uh, started to look into this. Because I, coming back to why I got this job, so this team was at the right moment, right? They were having this sort of startup company. And then they thought, they looked at this guy, Klaus there, he's, you know, really get engaged, he's doing great, you know. And then they approached me for an offer. And it was 15 years ago, and it was, I remember, you know, I was full-time consultancy at a client. So I was going from client to client and being, let's say, their watchdogs against Windows, when they came in with different software and architecture solutions, we had to go through this and see if it's okay, and they're trying to cheat the vendor or do something else, or help with X, Y, and Z. So I tried this, and you get in really, that's a fantastic job as well. You get engaged with a lot of people, you see different systems, and you see a lot from the real world. And suddenly, if I accept this position, then I have to basically do this open source thing, which I really love, right? Got mm -hmm. in my heart. But I had to work from my home 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah. It wasn't so commonplace back then. And you have a, a small apartment. You maybe have to code from your uh, bedroom and things like that. Yeah. But I could see that everybody else was doing that. So this was the fuse source company that had. So I started there. It took me almost a year before I had the opportunity to meet my peers. But we are live, but it oh, so just Laura, pick a place on the planet. Where did I meet my first nerdy friends? Finland? No, that's very cold. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. No, uh, we went Vegas, baby. Oh, okay. That's so, exciting. Yeah. Yes, just, so that's a crazy place to go. But we had the, the company was doing, we had an annual kickoff, everybody was going, and then we went there. So, and in Vegas, there's no hotels, there's only hotel casinos, so slot machines and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so, having some fun at, for work, that was really a nice pleasure to meet my fellow peers in that setting. And, you know, of course, we bonded and we had beers and things like that. So cool. 
Klaus, one thing I wanted to ask you, it's kind of interesting because when Laura had, we had talked about doing the show together, she had talked about how much prestige you had in the community and how big your brand was and all the good work you had done. And as a seller, I had default channels of how I would search to go and find that. And one of the things I found really fascinating about this whole experience is as I was searching, you weren't really showing up. And it, it was really interesting because as a seller, you, you know, you're like, oh, well, you need to be on LinkedIn. You need to be on YouTube or you need to be on Twitter. And if you're, that's it. And if I can't find those you there, then to a degree, you don't exist. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I love raspberry pies. And so talk, going back to your comment about like trusted communities, it's like, okay, when I was tinkering, where did I go? And then I started diving into Reddit and GitHub and Discord. And all of a sudden, your name was everywhere. And lots of different discussions came about. And it was super interesting because nobody talks about that, how there's so many other places that community can be. But I think the one thing you said that really stood out to me is trust. I think that is the key. Even if you're a trusted person, if you don't show up in a trusted place, I think that's really what Hmm. kills the momentum or that opportunity to really lean in. And I, I imagine too, for you, if you wouldn't have trusted that community, you wouldn't have wanted to contribute and it wouldn't have had that snowball effect that made you get excited and do more. Exactly, Nicholas. And actually also time is actually of one of the constraints we all have, right? But I wasn't really aware of that when the, my journey in the early days in the journey, you know, I want to give my best to the community and also contribute the most and get the product more successful and, and take it further, right? And get engaged with a lot of uh, new users to the community and all of that, you know, so it's a mix of things I was doing and thereby I was focusing in this sort of like, I was sort of blindsided a little bit on taking, let's say, the Apache Camel community to a wider audience also in more, let's say, non-technical areas, which I think also because we started so early, right? So 15, 16 years ago, it was just tech thing and early things. But today it's actually a business, it's professional. Which really we had more professional aspect to some of the things we had done over the years with Camel. When we do, let's say, more podcasts, live streams, etc. And, you know, having a person that can sort of host this and like you do, Nick, and, and do it in a more professional way than we just turn on our webcam and do something ourselves. It's not the same. It's certainly not anymore. Graphics, website, look and feel design and so on. There's so many things about also how to reach outreach more to a wider audience and maybe also in different circles. So it's not as nerdy and technical as need to be because it has a fantastic purpose, the, the software we do and also the other things from Apache software. There are like some analysts that do, you know, that measure the impact of different open source projects based on different metrics they can use, you know, number of downloads, number of source code lines and number of years, how many contributors, et cetera. And then they try to acquaint that to a dollar amount. If let's say you start from scratch and do the same today. And then, you know, these open source code projects in Apache, they are like millions and millions of dollars, right? So it's a huge, huge effort that's gone into this. And not a single person like myself could do it and not anything. It's the collective of so many people. And that really team atmosphere that all really came together. And I think the one thing yes. I, I haven't heard you highlight yet that you've done so well that so many people just blatantly miss when it comes to community 
is you have a very refined look at market research. And I think one of the best examples I heard you talk about, and I, please, I would love if you could go and share it again, is you had all those people lined up to go and have uh, your signature on books, but you didn't just sign books. You had a bigger purpose that you played out. Oh, yes. Yeah. So when you sign books, or if you have the pleasure of being able to do that, then uh, when the person comes in and, and I actually introduce, and we have a little chat where very from, you know, oh, you, what are you using Camel for? How long time? And do you know some feedback and back and forth? Or do you enjoy the time, Harry? Is it your first time, etc.? Sort of like giving a little chit chat. And then I assign with a personal note based on that. Sort of like, and every signature I've done in this way is they have a different, unique inscription for that. So if you have two different books, there will be two different measures. It's just not like my name only. I always try to come with some personal touch to it because these people are, no, first of all, they are actually using my baby, if I can use that word, really proud of that. Yeah. And also, they get take the time to queue up or buy the book or read the book and then take the time for doing something else and meet me, right? That's the small crisis you can take from this work because, you know, at the end of the day, from Red Hat point of view, I mean, just like anybody else, regular employees, they give me a salary and that's it. But the thing I take to the grave is all these other things that happened in my life, in my work with the open source communities. It was, as you said, line for my autograph, right? This is also something I can explain to my mother and father and friends out of the IT tech, sort of like a little rock star or a famous moment, because everybody can relate to that. It's also when I go to conference or clients, etc., and I have a hallway conversation in one that just comes up and say, hey, I just, hey, you're Klaus, yeah. Oh, fantastic. I love Camel. We've been using it for 13 years or to eight years. It just made my, I wrote 5,000 lines of code. Now I have five, right? It's such a fantastic thing. You know, keep on rocking, right? Something like that. It, it's, yeah. Also, when you hear where that software is being used, it's actually used global all the world in every enterprise. It's not a specific enterprise or finance or something like that. Everything. And some are, let's say, you can't public tell about and others are a public reference and so on, but it's, it's a very huge uh, uses. Everybody that is actually entering and exiting American airspace will be using Camel just for, for reference. One thing I wanted to add in for like the sales and marketing world, what happens all too often is that incredible knowledge that you have, that research that you've done in action with all these people you've talked to tends to only live in that one person's head. Mm. How have you shared that information and do you write it down in notes? Do you have conversations with marketing or do you just pour all that energy into your code? What does that look like after you get it? And then after we'll ask, Lee had a great question. We'll dive into that. So Nicholas, that's a really fantastic question. And if I could rewind time, I will have my, even though I work with IT, I'm old fashioned. I wish I had a sort of like a black book with some, you know, I use in the post-it note here. I will write down these small anecdotes. Because when I started with this, I didn't expect it to last, you know, 15 years or even longer, right? Probably it's going to take me to the end of my career with Camel. And I wish I can exactly say when I was at that spot, I learned about Camel being used in the casinos or whatnot, or assembly lines for fighter jets and, and so on. It's just fantastic. And it's also, you feel that what has been done and all the energy you put into that uh, is matters. because. That's one of the, when I talk to my fellow engineers at Red Hat and maybe also 
the same feeling others will have in large organization is that there is a bureaucracy and sometimes uh, we are occupied on a daily work and then we have to rush to get out a new release, et cetera, et cetera. So we kind of in that zone and then it starts over again as a new release coming up and so on. Then sometimes we forget to take a pause and go to an event of sorts and get that client engagement or customer engagement, sales engagement. So for not for me, but personally, but also my peers as well, because when I talk to them, yeah. they, they're even more like that one. And I think it kills a little bit of motivation. Some of that I experienced in the early days uh, when, let's say, there wasn't so much bureaucracy. If you want to go there, we go there. Or if there's a new client deal, a huge client's coming, we want to you know, take you out for dinner and things like that. That's what uh, maybe you could do in the early days with a startup feeling. But, you know, a large organization where I'm at now, it's, that's becoming a little more rare, right? And I wish I could, if I have some stardust, I could spread that to my peers and say, okay, you give some of that moment as well, because you certainly also deserve that, right? You've been sitting at home for during COVID and now continue for that for many years. And maybe the, how the economy is going, that will be even more about this restriction. So I wish we were exposed to that more. Maybe that's where in your kind of world can maybe be inspiration to us. And maybe there's something we can work on could be sort of like an engagement between, let's say, the tech communities like myself and maybe on the sales side as well. So maybe a way for that to connect in a different way. And because there's two different worlds, but sometimes you want to hear from the other side and get that feeling or that vibe or that inspiration. It may not be this, let's say, it doesn't even have to be the same industry. And I wish that some of the things we have done differently in over the years with the open source community, Apache, because it's very technical and nerdy and people that maybe go to that place feel like, okay, I need tech people to look into this if it's any relevant, but certainly not. If we had, let's say, a different marketing approach for some of that, then it could be, let's say, an opportunity for people in higher position to go and look at and say, okay, this is something that we need to look into. Well, that leads into like Lee's question about like, how do you share it? And I think it's such a hard part because like you were saying, like a lot of it's a very technical community, but how do you put into bite-sized pieces that are for a broader audience or versus just that one technical problem? Because I noticed even with like Raspberry Pi, sometimes I wanted to go and see everything start to finish that full use case because I really wanted to understand the full concept. Other times, I just wanted bite-sized pieces because I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. Now, I'll pull up Lee's question because it's fantastic. Curious about what ideas work best when sharing in your domain? Do people want granular detailed ideas or surface level concepts? For marketers, especially on LinkedIn, seems like they stay in the concepts and do not share a lot of the details. And I think there's a reason why they don't share a lot of the details. Part of it is attention spans. Some people think that general knowledge somehow becomes something they have to guard but i think it really comes down to more it's just attention spans what do you think close when you're sharing do you have a go-to method that you use the progress of the years right i again i feel like i'm i'm talking about your grandfather software of being an old man right but being <laughs> kind of started in the tech before almost like when the internet came and doing things like that and then the only way to get knowledge back then was books and reading a lot of pages and researching, but taking your time, right? 
And there was no, let's say, visual content as much as there is today or diagrams and, and things like that. And doing this, you know, we now have the mobile phones and the TikToks and the Snapchats and all that kind of thing. So, of course, there's a newer generation coming in. I'm not saying that they are on that level, but they are used to getting information in a different way. And let's say yeah. outside of professional life, let's say that. And sometimes I think there might be two tiered how to get the message out. One is the more casual, fluffy, brief, short, three minutes, whatever that can be. But that's where the, the nerdy tech people kind of struggle, because if you have to do this and keep that attention span, you probably need some sort of professional touch to that. So you know, video editing and scripted and smooth experience to get that out. Versus, let's say, if you go more in-depth and technical, it's okay to maybe spend 30 minutes or 40 minutes or and go deep dive. And, you know, now I share my screens and there's yeah. like a 10-second lag and maybe the font is too small. And you, you sort of like, that's okay because the audience at that moment is already hooked and want to learn this one and have taken the time to yeah. sit down and learn it, right? But the first one, this is where I am weak and I unfortunately don't produce so much content because for me it will take you know an hour to do something that is three minutes but i am starting to do a little posting on social media twitter and linkedin in particular about the exciting new features coming in relation to camel and i'm really also restricting myself to be mostly about camel because that's where people are following me for they're not following me for because i'm enjoyed that movie or had this dinner or whatnot. So it's strictly mostly 98% about Camel. Um, so that's what I use. And I would like to pick it up a bit more to do a bit more posting. But I also feel that it can be a quick way to show something for the tech audience or the audience there about exciting new things or a feature that is coming. And that we started to have animated graph animation of that. So basically in your Twitter feed or LinkedIn feed, you just scroll and you scroll, there's so many things, right? But, oh, there's something about Camel, this, yada, yada, yada. And then there's a little animation kind of just quickly highlight, okay, this is possible. So just to short attention span for the busy people, okay, there's something coming like this in Camel. Okay, then they know this. And then when the release is out, they can dive in and then see more. That's brilliant because it plays on psychology. Uh, visuals help us go from short-term memory to long-term memory faster. And I think the one thing that is so brilliant in how you're doing this technical deep dive is one thing that we doesn't get talked about very often is when you do this type of work, there's an element of creativity that is learned through, me and Morgan joke and call it gray hair work, where you learn through trial and error and doing it the hard way and screwing up and learning through that. And so people don't want polished long-form content they want to see you actually do the work because it's the only time most people get to go and mimic or mm. they get like almost like a digital apprenticeship and they're learning through osmosis being in that community, but they don't normally get to see people work because we're all working remotely. So it's the first time. And I think the hard part, like you were saying, is that balance of short versus deep dive because the short and to my, from what I've seen in LinkedIn, this has changed a lot is that the short is how you get attention and earn credibility, but the deep dive inspires change. And yeah. so you can't do too much long form because you're not going to keep expanding your audience. But like, oh. as you know, because you're, you know, you're in that community and you're in the right place, people will seek that out. 
One thing I found really, really intriguing that I've noticed in the past year is previously full use cases were the best way because people just didn't know. So they wanted to see the whole thing because that's what inspired ideas. But what I've noticed now is people don't want that. What they're hunting for is the specific problem that they understand, but they don't know how to fix. Kind of like when I was, and I, I go back to my Raspberry Pi, when I was building an Octopi to go and do decryption, and I was playing with building a router and all these goodies, I didn't necessarily want the full thing because I had a little bit of knowledge. I just wanted to figure out why this one specific piece wasn't working. I think that's the evolution that if you're going after people that want to eventually buy from you, is you got to go and go from that novice to expert and kind of play in that sweet spot. So Lee, I hope that answers your question. Please go and you know shoot another comment if you want more explanation. But it's a balance. And I would say it's probably only 20% deep dives and 80% short. And I think that's generally why YouTube shorts and TikTok exploded. And it also allows us to share more emotions and empathy, not just yeah. something blank, right? Exactly. But during with your Raspberry Pi story, that's exactly what we want camera users or the, our communities to do something similar in that way because you're exactly right. You learn the best by trial and error. And Camel is, there's no, with Camel, it's an enterprise, it's a generic enterprise software integration framework. So you can basically use it to any kind of integration needs you have and then use it. But there's no, we can't provide out of the box solution for everything. You have to yeah. try it by yourself, right? And we want to make, uh, we are making Camel much easier to trial and error. Actually, we have something called Camel JBank that allows you just from the very easily to bootstrap something in Camel and it will immediately give you feedback if it works or not works or what fails, et cetera. And then you just do a change and you see immediately the, the change affected by Camel. So you just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat all the time. And it's purposely created in this way because we want you to actually explore and try things. Okay, you can maybe take one of the out-of-the-box JBang examples that works. We just rub messages between two systems. But we want you to get curious and say... Yeah, figure out why it works, how to yes, add on to it. Yeah. What happens if I, I change this, right? So, so that's the thing. It's sort of like a playground for people to explore Camel. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, kind of following on to this, is it really strikes me that the open source really takes a technical approach to community. So everybody out that I see is technical technically sound, they've done the work. Where a lot of the communities that me and Lara deal, in, deal with all the time is their sellers and marketers. And so there's a different agenda. Do you think the open source communities would be as big as they are today if it would have been just sales and marketers and not technical people like yourself? Nobody can, you know, I don't think that's a true answer to that, right? But I actually think it happened in the right order, right? So the sort of like a grassroots nerdy tech people found this order on the internet and shared some interest on making something better. That was, they maybe have, there's so much bureaucracy at the work, et cetera. So, but they maybe have shared interest in a specific, like a Raspberry Pi thing or something. And then they started building this software, but it was in the spare time, right? And there was also a way to a journey to learn from others and by themselves, maybe basically some of the, Early days, if you go back then as an as, as a novice engineer or whatever, the only way to sort of um, acquire learners was sometimes using formal training by the your employee. So they send you to uh, you know a week's training or once a year somewhere, 
and you have one, you only have that. You get maybe get at the end of the day, you get a certificate. Sales has the same thing in common. You get your yeah. one week and you're done just to check the box. Yes. <laughs> and okay, that's good for some social eventing as well, right? But it doesn't really raise the bar very high. So I also, this is what I, I hear from a lot of people that start getting engaged in these uh, open source communities from the tech side of thing is that you, they learn more in a week than they had learned in the entire time by all these training. And it's yeah, fantastic. so many different examples. Yes. But I think it, we are growing up, right? Now it's, it's sort of the de facto standard. It's so pervasive with open source projects. Companies are releasing internal software as an open source community or trying to and so on. They also actually use it to a way of attract new employees and talents and, and also get their, it's a marketing effort as well. It also happens that companies form around an open source community project like uh, Confluent did with Apache Cafe and so on. So we are becoming grown up and standard, and then we need the other side or help from the other side. So sales and marketing is certainly very welcome to the open source communities. And, you know, there's also developer advocacy where you have a special role where you sort of like a half developer and half marketing sales. And oh, these people are really, really good at being professional, going out to communities and getting in, in conference and presenting stuff and really getting engaged. Because again, if you go back 15 years ago or so to a conference, it was nerdy. It might be a single slow voice, yada, yada. And here is, and now on the next slide, you see, and of course, you know, <laughs> people will get a little. <clears throat> Okay, but that's where <laughs> yeah. you, you got the, the content, right? It was the guy that created this thing. You saw the person present this. But today you have professional presenters like these uh, roles where, you know, companies hire these people to go out on their behalf and make make the thing more famous. And that's what we want, too, is those that half role. Because I think that's, I always talk about when we talk about social selling, that one of the things that gets missed a lot of time is something called the flip. And it's when you transition in your prospect's mind of just a seller into an advisor, someone they can trust. And I think it's really neat that role that you guys have developed that has come out of all of this trial and error is, mm. yeah, they need to have a little technical understanding and be to better understand how to do the sales and marketing function. And so I want to go back 15 years. You've learned so much. You've tried so many different things. So think it, there's so many people that are basically stepping in your shoes today, trying to go and either get a community role or they're trying to do good in the communities that they're in. If you were to go back and give yourself some advice on how to start again, to know that you were, and even just to give yourself some guidance to know that you were being successful, what would you tell yourself? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Gosh, I wish. So I think maybe definitely um, you can do it. But you have to go beyond. It has to be something that you want to spend one hour, additional hour on Sunday after work or try to do because the community is always there and they you get better engagement with others and peers when you can see that you have some interest and passion for it. And you can grow there. You can ask, start small. You don't have to be afraid that this is a large community or others, etc. But if you have the heart and mind for it, then you can definitely go be successful. And there's many ways you can contribute or be part of a community. It doesn't have to be, let's say, tech and code only. And uh, frankly, we have the best people are the ones that are 
doing, have experienced it in many different areas. That's also a way to find your place where you like the most, because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. it's not just work. It's creativity, it's play, it's fun, it's get engaged with other people. Me, that we have people that are actually out of their own pocket paying flight tickets and hotels to go to conference to meet people that have been engaged with a community, right? Spending a thousand dollars or so to go there. And you don't do that for, let's say, standard regular work, right? Yeah. And this is a different thing. So it's sort of like a crossway between a hobby and, and some work things. And it's a <laughs> such engaging thing. And you will start, actually, when you start to worry about the thing about, okay, this person is trying to do this and how can I help? And mm, is there something I can help with? Or you think about their problems and these things, then your own or that, you know, your employer Red Hat new day, you know, in six months, we need a new release. That's just work. So your body and your mind sort of like goes into that, that other thing. Yeah. When you have that bonding across people from the entire world, the one thing that stuck to my back of mind, I'm trying to paraphrase what it was. So there was a, a person from South America, was it South Africa, that had an issue with can, when the open source community camel and reported it. And another guy in Europe was having similar issues. They sort of honed in on the issue. And then uh, the next morning, a person from uh, Asia had implemented a fix to it and, and proposed that fix. And then the other guy has tested it and so on. So it was a true collaboration across the globe for three people Beautiful. that didn't know each other, right? And on that goal. And they were, you know, happy to put in that work because it was a trusted foundation or trusted place to do that. Let's say it was a, a single window software you are a customer of as professionally, you may not see that engagement from the, the users of that that you will see in these communities. But I, coming back to that one, I will say that have fun. You can learn more there than in any place else. Now, today, those communities are very much more vibrant and, and inclusive, and you can have different roles, but it can also be a daunting to go, what kind of community you do want to get engaged with? You have to find something you have a passion for and find... Yeah, it has to be you. It can't yeah. be just the company. No. You see that all too often where people don't lean into their superpower and they basically just take the role of their company. And I think it just sells them so short because if that's all you were doing is you come across as promotional. But if you're leaning into those things that you're... I would say like of the things that you could offer or talk about, what is one of those things that you would, could, you're happy reading in your time off? Or... Like you said, going and buying a ticket to a conference or we'll never get bored of talking about. Lean on that. Just focus on that one thing. Don't worry about the rest yet. Like that can come later if it's of interest. But I think that is the biggest problem with communities is people come in there with the purpose of I either need to sell or I need to cover everything. And they forget that they're just a human with interests. And mm. if they lean into those interests, people will naturally come to them because we're humans, right? Like yes. you can get information from anywhere, but I'd rather work with someone that I like and trust versus mm. just anyone else, especially when there's just so much information everywhere. I'd rather find those sources that I want to keep going back to. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. But also when you start to get engaged and find like minded in that community, you know, there's a more trust to the, your peers in that community and you start to also pay attention, okay, what are they doing and what they need? And then, you know, there's a snowball effect that can roll and everybody can become, it matters, right? But also, if I have to give myself an advice, you know, you also have to take your time off, right? 
Yeah. But I was, uh, you know, writing two books, this one and the other one. The first book was uh, half the size. That's a lot of work. But in terms of revenue from the sales of the book, unfortunately, you have to sell it through a publisher. And that's only what's basically that's what the motivation is, because they are professional. They guide you, help you. So there is a people have to buy the book. And that, OK, that's the price. I accept that and also see that, OK, if you are working from a Fortune 500 company, they surely have, you know, $50 to buy a book for some of the employees. But it's not really the revenue. You know, if I tell myself, you know, from the sales of the book, I can earn more money by being, a, you know, a, a spare time uh, gardener or something, even though I'm, a, I'm poor at gardening. But so it's definitely not the thing. But it was to bring Camel to the next level, you know, to help that project, you know, because earlier days, you know, the information that was around these things, even though there's a website and things, it's not as extensive details and uh, well sought out in, in the book. So that's that also the... your like mindset of going through that and even explaining it. Because it's one thing we noticed by creating a guide is it really made you think about, is this actually how I think about this? Is this actually how I do this? And I imagine your knowledge from writing those two authoritative books completely changed everything about how, or really crystallized every element of how you think through things. And it'll be really interesting carrying that momentum into your third book. And I imagine too, as soon as you wrote that book, shortly after you started getting requests for speaking engagements or different consulting work, because you were the trusted source that people wanted. And then made Laura <laughs> jealous when uh, they were lining up to <laughs> yes. get your signature. <laughs> exactly. And, and actually, if I had to say one moment, that sort of, if I had to say, in tech, we have, there's something called test-driven development and, and other things. So the book is what I call dog-driven development. I got my best moments and ideas for the book when I was walking my dogs. Mm. There's just something about being in motion when you're walking that it's just like ideas just, that's why I yes. always have to have my phone with me when I go take the dog for a walk because you got to write down those notes or they're gone forever. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the tricks I use. You can say that being so engaged in the open source community, you always feel short, right? There's always something you can better do. There was this person asking for this and it didn't have time to reply. Essentially, there's some maybe a topic for another end that, that could be, I, I see, lacking in the some of the open source community is that there's maybe an element of a business to it where there could maybe be a tiered element. So some organization could sort of like have a, a subscription where they pay a certain amount of dollars to something and then people could help them based on that. Okay, that's $100, that's $1,000. And then essentially what you do is is buying someone else time because I don't have more time than anybody else and family, dogs, son, vacation, red hat and things like that. But going to Egypt with camels. <laughs> and that too, and writing books. But sometimes there could be that, that thing lacking, but I think this is hard to do across the globe with different um, regulation, tax rules, etc. But I think there are I'm not an expert on this, but there has been numerous attempts of trying to create that element between in the open source community as well. Can we have a business around that for these kind of things? So maybe that's the topic for, for you guys to try to research that aspects. I am aware of one um, bright-minded engineer that I can get you in touch with that has actually researched a bit on that, on the elements of business sure. models across different open source models. So 
I just noticed that we're already at the top of the hour and we're over. But yeah, I would love that intro. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time to go and share your journey, share what has happened in your life and that the last bits there of those real learnings. There's people are going to walk away from this and save so much time and from trial and error and really hit the ground running. So thank you. I really appreciate this. So I wish you guys the best as well. And keep in touch. There's I can definitely need some help with outreach and marketing and things like that on social media as well. Because at the end of the day, I want people to get more attention on on that little project called Apache Camel. Well, it sounds like a perfect way for us to go and help each other and build that community. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Klaus. And everyone, thank you for this another session of Enterprise of Social joining us. Have a great week. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Hey. We know how hard implementing this stuff is. That's why this podcast exists. We decided to take it a step further and start the One Up Club to give you the frameworks and resources you need to move the dial in 2023. Learn more at b2bpowerhour.com slash join. Because we know you have a quota and you can't afford to wait.